Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I am John Schaefer, and from WQXR, you're listening to the Artist Propulsion Lab, our program to support emerging and mid-career artists. Each year, the APL, as we call it, gives musicians the chance to commission work and engage with collaborators, as well as taking advantage of the platforms that the station offers, like this podcast. And every other Thursday for the next few months, one artist will explore a topic important to them. In this episode of the Artist Propulsion Lab, I'm talking with one of the members of this year's class, the Lebanese-American violinist and composer Lyal Chakar. One of the things that struck us about Lyal's music is its relationship to some of the big, fundamental questions facing us today. Questions about our relationship to the planet, our stewardship of it. I began our conversation by asking why she decided to tackle such a huge subject as climate change in her music. As a composer, as a musician, uh, a performer, one of the core subjects and concerns I often reflect on through my work is environment and climate change. To me, it is uh, the ultimate cause, the mother cause, and it sublimates every other political, ethical, moral, cultural struggle we are facing right now as a as a human race. So there's this undeniable sense of urgency that I feel and that I feel that many of us do as well um, in the artistic and musical world. And is it is only natural that this urgency takes more and more center stage as I'm witnessing it right now through the works of my colleagues as well. Let me introduce a, a couple of your colleagues, uh, one from the arts, and that is Fabian Almazan, the Cuban-American pianist and composer who uh, has shared some of your interests and actually incorporated sounds of uh, endemic birds from Cuba into some of his music. Fabian, welcome. Hi, John. Pleasure to be here. And from a completely different circle uh, of academia, David Lentz from the University of Cincinnati, whose specialty is paleobotany and even more specifically in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. David, thank you for being with us as well. Thank you, John, for having me. And I'm guessing that one of the reasons you wanted us to include Fabian in our conversation today is that, Fabian, you too uh, are interested in incorporating the sounds of the land, the sounds of nature in, in your own work. On your album called This Land Abounds With Life, which is a very telling title right off the bat, there's a piece called Songs of the Forgotten, which actually incorporates sounds of bird songs. What was your intention in in actually creating a piece of music like that? Well, I, I was ever since I, I was a child, I've always felt this sort of innate attraction to to the natural world, which I later came to learn. E.O. Wilson has a theory called uh, biophilia, which is that human beings are innately attracted to nature, which explains why people pay crazy amounts of money here in New York City to live right next to Central Park. There's just something about that that we all can relate to. And yeah, it was a multi-layered project for me because broadly speaking, as a member of the world, I care very much about sustainability. I was born in Cuba and I lived there till I was nine years old. And going back to Cuba was a very emotional thing for me. 
it had been 23 years since I was able to go back for many complicated reasons. And there were a lot of practices in Cuba that resembled those of the Soviet Union, which were very harmful to, to the environment. So for me as an artist, it, it was a very uh, personal project. And it was something that I wanted to do just because I felt throughout my life this calling, this sort of responsibility. And speaking with some of my peers, it became clear to me that I felt this passion for the natural world that maybe others around me didn't demonstrate as much. And as an artist, I think it's it's our duty that if there is something that really resonates with us, we need to pursue that wholeheartedly so that the art form that we are emanating is honest and, and truthful. Music is such an abstract art form, so that that that's what I do as an artist. I just I really I try to really lean into the abstract nature of sound, and that you just have to tip into it and just not really question too much about it, other than just going with what your heart is is telling you to do. And that's what my heart was telling me to do. I felt a sense of responsibility as as an artist and as a human being which has actually evolved even more now that I'm a parent. Um, it's vital, I think, that we do everything that we can for future generations. Fabian, you mentioned, you know, the music as an abstract sound, but when you incorporate, as you did, actual concrete recordings of nature, of birdsong, that's a different thing, which neuroscientists will tell you that that strikes the ear and, and the brain differently. It provokes a different response. So the idea that music is completely an abstract thing, you are actually kind of blurring that distinction when you do something like, you know, the songs of the forgotten. To me, it's all music. The bird songs I will classify as music as well. Yeah. I lived in Australia for a year and a half, and the bird songs there are very different. Sometimes when I take my son to the zoo here and we walk past the Australian fauna, it's, it just triggers a lot of memories. So I guess you're completely right, John, because the connection of nature bird songs just it just made me connect onto something yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's why we call tape music music concrete, you know, because they're concrete sounds, they're around us, we know what they are, they do provoke some kind of emotional response, some kind of memory, as as in your case. Now Lyal, you and David have met before and it was at was it Dumbarton Oaks? Is that where the two of you met? That is true, yes. We, we've we met uh, at Dumbarton Oaks, which is a residency at a Harvard library uh, situated in Washington, D.C. And um, for me, it was the very first time that I spent three, four months on end uh, surrounded by scientists. I was the only artist <laughs> in residency. And it was very intimidating for me, of course, but it was very educational as well. And it just resonated with all of the questions that are in my mind right now, there's from my end and from many artists and a common wish to serve facts, data, science through what we do in order for us to better grasp and understand the subject and communicate it better from the standpoints we are in through music in my case. So I've had 
many conversations with many scholars, including David, and it was very inspirational and it was very um, moving. There's a sense of storytelling, especially in what David does. Now, David, the story is one of doom and gloom, it seems, if you read the headlines. But your work looking at the history of what has happened in Central and South America suggests that there are patterns that that offer a glimmer of hope, right? That's right. I work with archaeologists a great deal. And one of the great things about archaeology is you can study cultures over large timescales. So we can look at the, the Maya civilization, where I work primarily, and we can see how they changed over time. And we're not talking over uh, a couple of weeks or a couple of uh, quarters on the business cycle, but we're talking over thousands of years. And this gives you a, a greater perspective on really who we are as a species. Are we simply big brain jackals who are uh, plundering the landscape? Or do we evolve as cultures into uh, more nurturing societies that see the earth as, as our mother and as a, the source of our existence, which is absolutely true? And do we? I mean, <laughs> is there a record of our species actually treating the earth that way? Well, we see that in the Maya, that the, the Maya began as farmers about 3000 B.C., Initially, what they did was they practiced what we call slash-and-burn or Swidden agriculture. And slash-and-burn agriculture is fine when populations are low. You can actually do that sustainably. But as populations grew, as they did for the Maya, they began to have problems uh, with erosion and other things. But their societies uh, began to compensate for that, and they adapted many other kinds of land use practices. And so uh, they developed more sustainable agriculture and agroforestry techniques that would control erosion and intensify food production at the same time. For example, they protected forest tracts to maintain major amounts of, of tree cover and conserve habitat. And they did this because these were important sources of timber and medicinal plants. So, so Lyle, I mean, there are big ideas there in what David is saying. How do you, as an artist, as a composer, a musician, what kind of practice can you put those ideas into in your uh, area of, of endeavor? So thanks to people like David who make this information available to us, we have a better knowledge as as witnesses and actually as as protagonists and, and at the same time being the antagonist we understand first our role better and in turn we strive to communicate better um i think the role in the arts generally is that we are capable of creating empathy and i think empathy is what can make people relate to a story or understand it. And so this is, I think, where our role is to amplify and to create this layer of empathy that would provoke action. So the idea that, yes, there's a crisis, but that we as people can do something about it, th that second part of that message is just as important as crying out that there's a problem. And I think it's also reconnecting with the role of musicians as 
people who are involved in the livelihood and the passing of of season and harvest seasons of their their communities i think somehow even musicians were more involved in the agricultural life of their communities as well and were much more in touch uh with nature mm-hmm. and of course musicians are only just a part of their society so it is in a way also a role that musicians had before the migration of the musical ritual to a to a concert space um david the mayans i'm wondering if we were able to get a sense of the flora and fauna with which these people lived back then and if you have any way of comparing it to what's there today to kind of see the impact of a thousand year you know a long calendar civilization on the surrounding area on the environment and on the flora and fauna that live there well exactly that's my job to uh, understand all of these things and yes we we do see how they modify their environment and they did many beautiful things for example they protected sacred groves and they planted parks around reservoirs and we can see by uh, measuring the forest and looking at the plant remains that we find archaeologically we can see that they they did a very good job at maintaining biodiversity the forests that are there now are very similar in composition to the forests that were there in the past so the maya had many conservation oriented tendencies however they did some things that were more complicated for example at yashnoka we see that the maya converted some of their tropical forest into pine savannas and this happens when you repeatedly burn tropical forest and you do it so frequently that the tropical forest doesn't come back so they may have deliberately changed their environment and one interesting aspect of this is that even though they created pine savannas those savannas are all gone now so that the the land is resilient so the tropical forest will come back if left alone for uh, long enough this is interesting because we see down in amazonia where this sort of the same thing is happening where they're burning tracts of the tropical forest and and that some of that land is being converted into pine savanna so the message i want to give here that there's some hope that even though some of that land in amazonia has been degraded what we see in the maya areas if we can leave it alone long enough then these forests will return it's like a it's like a little miracle uh which lyal goes to a, a piece of music you suggested we might profitably here during this conversation milagros by gabriela lena frank a series of literally miracles one of which is milagrito danza de tingo maria tell us what tingo maria is it sort of goes to what david was just saying right exactly this piece actually resonates a lot with what david is talking about and it is inspired by the peruvian border jungle town tingo maria and the surrounding that is impenetrable and that Gabriella was inspired from especially from the sounds during the rainfall so it's very evocative and very much in tune with what we were talking about
On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. We are speaking with Lyle Chalker, the uh, Lebanese-American violinist and composer, member of the WQXR Artist Propulsion Lab this year, the APL, along with uh, the Cuban-American pianist and composer Fabian Almazan and uh, Professor David Lentz from the University of Cincinnati, who specializes in the paleobotany of pre-Columbian America. And we're talking about music and nature and environment and stewardship, really, is what all three of you are talking about historically, artistically, and uh, Lyle, as a parent yourself, stewardship, it's, it's funny how becoming a parent seems to kind of take what could be a sort of abstract concept, and we were talking about the difference between abstract and concrete before, it takes that abstract construct and makes it very concrete and important, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it, it compels us to ask all of these questions. Maybe it is why all of this is at the forefront of my mind. It is because of this awareness that we need to learn from the mistakes of the past in order to better move forward. That is why the historical context that David is providing is so invaluable, because it does help us to shape and inform our present, our future, and our interaction with our land and our oceans. And that is why also, Fabio, I think you are also a new parent. Oh, yeah. And I think, I believe that we probably share that perspective of that will to, and that wish to, to leave a better place for our children. Absolutely. Well, Fabian, you mentioned before that it was a span of over 20 years between the time you left Cuba and the time you were able to go back. Did you see... Uh, when you returned, a, a dramatically different approach to the land? Did you see effects of 20 years of continual human impact on the land? What was that like? Well, one area that was interesting is called Las Terrazas, which is, if, if you go west from Havana, <clears throat> it's there. In, in the 1970s, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm a musician. I don't know exactly, ecologically speaking, what happened, but it sounds very similar to what David is describing, and they had overused the land. So with Las Terrazas, what they did is just start from scratch, and they planted endemic trees. And as far as I could tell, it was a very vibrant, natural landscape now. <clears throat> so that, that, that was a very interesting thing to see. Granted, I left when I was nine years old, so my interests were very pure... <laughs> Uh, back then, just having fun outdoors as a child. But just to speak to what Lyal is saying, as far as being a parent, and something that for me lately has become more inescapable, it's in my mind constantly now, is the, the idea of uh, environmental justice. I actually wanted to ask David, because in modern society, there are these pockets throughout the world that some people call sacrifice zones, which are essentially where low-income communities are the victims of either big corporations or governments that just because of zoning laws and zoning practices, the majority of the pollution that society takes in ends up in these sacrifice zones. 
And it's, it's, you know, his, historically in the United States, it has a lot to do with Jim Crow laws and things like that. So I'm just wondering if you saw any, any similarities with Mayan culture where there were these quote unquote sacrifice zones back then. Well, we didn't see it in the way you're describing it. One, one interesting case that pops up in my mind is it was almost a reverse sacrifice zone. Uh, we did a lot of studies at Tikal, which is one of the major cities of the ancient Maya. And the most polluted area seemed to be right next to the palace of the rulers. And one of the reasons for this is the rulers painted their buildings with cinnabar, which is a mercury-containing pigment. And then the heavy seasonal rains washed the mercury into the reservoir. So the rulers were drinking water and eating tamales that are laced with mercury. And also they, they had a kitchen right along the reservoir, and they, apparently the cooks threw out kitchen scraps. And these would wash into the reservoir, and this created a, sort of a rich nutrient broth. And what happened is they had a number of bouts of uh, cyanobacteria, or they had blue-green algae blooms. And uh, these blue-green algae produce very uh, toxic compounds so that their, their water would become green and impossible to drink. Yeah, Fabian, you, you're, you're correct in pointing out that a lot of, you know, environmental issues are bound up in political, sociopolitical things like redlining and Jim Crow. And, it, and it's sad because it's the children, for the most part, that really exp experience the hardship of that. That that's the connection in my mind. Because the adults, uh, you know, we can right. We we have a little more agency. A child is just brought into the world and just has to exist in this place, uh, and it's just, it, it's heartbreaking for me to to read more and more about this. What is the musician's role? I mean, you asked that question earlier in our conversation. You know, what is our role in in this? Have you, in addition to framing the question, have you considered what a possible answer for you might be? Again, I think just our role is basically to act as witnesses, the witnesses that we already all are as citizens, and to present a frame of mind that would inspire action. I think it would be very utopian to say that we, we can act. We cannot act. We can inspire for action, and we can inspire for more information or more involvement. That is our role, ultimately. Composers like Olivier Messiaen, who documented, as Fabian has done, documented birdsong in his pieces, maybe not with actual recordings, but, you know, uh, although Fabian, in some of the right-hand part of the piano in uh, Songs of the Forgotten, sounds like you're kind of imitating birdsong. Yeah, that's the Chichinguaco. That's the name of the bird. And of course, you know, the Catalogue d'Oiseau, the Catalogue of the Birds by Messiaen Lyal, that is a kind of documentation. It's an audio documentary by a pianist composer of the sounds of nature around him. Things like that, works like that, have a, a kind of a meaning and a potential utility that goes beyond the notes on the page, right? Well, yes. I mean, in, in, in Messiaen's um, situation, it is slightly different. He identified or presented himself 
very specifically as an ornithologist. He does enact with that documentary sense of uh, mind. Like he thinks that his uh, work is documentary. And in Catalogue d'Oiseau, you actually have listing of 12 birds. I thought that this specific uh, catalogue d'oiseaux is, um, of it is very interesting because I went and looked actually at the different birds and most of them are, it's a funny, uh, it's a funny way of um, describing the, the conservation status, but basically the birds who aren't threatened are categorized as of least concern. <laughs> and there is one bird, one of the last birds, the le Coris André, uh, the curlew, um, it is actually the only bird from the catalog that is now categorized as near threatened. So even though he did think of himself uh, very questionably as a documentarist, maybe somewhere along the years, it will actually be seen as a piece of documentation or evidence of what was there. Yes. I mean, near threatened is is a little bit of a warning sign. I mean, you know, if the curlew ever disappears we will now have actual documentation of what its song sounded like, but we'll also have this pianist slash ornithologist slash whatever else, whatever other titles Messiaen gave himself to tell us a little bit, not just about what the bird sounded like, but what it meant to him. And that too is, is part of the function of, of the artist is it's what does it mean? What does it make you feel? That, that seems to be part of the point of this. Exactly. So, David, do we look to history for causes for continued optimism? Well, I, I think we do. Uh, I, I want to say that the, the ancient Maya and other ancient cultures uh, present very good examples for us. Yes, the ancient Maya had problems, and eventually their society collapsed, but they did try to develop sustainable land use practices. Unlike us, they were unaware of the long-term impacts of some of their problematic activities. We, on the other hand, know much more explicitly what lies ahead for us, and we know how to correct our environmental challenges. We just currently lack the political and socioeconomic will to do so. So, in short, we have a lot to learn from the Maya and other cultures, but it is our responsibility to learn from those successes and failures of the past so our descendants can inherit a healthy and sustainable planet. And Lyal, uh, to wrap this all up, what, what does all of this thinking on your part, all of this pondering of our place in the world as artists, as witnesses, what is this doing for the, the works that you're currently in the process of writing? There is this real-life metaphor that happened during the civil war in Lebanon, in my home country, that I always like to refer back to. The capital, Beirut, was divided between east and west, and there was a border of no crossing between the two. Beirut is an urban jungle, and during those 15 years where one could not cross that no-man's land between east and west, 
the vegetation lurked back on that very fine strip between East and West Beirut, basically because the land has been left alone. And so even within this urban crazy jungle, even amidst a civil war that was pure bloodshed for 15 years, nature managed to resuscitate just because it was left alone, just because man created this area where no one was allowed. So I think this metaphor of resuscitation amongst such desolate conditions and such ruins is a lesson to behold for all of us on how we can move forward and just learn from our mistakes and in order to be able to leave a better future for our children. And do you expect that this will, uh, that, that this idea will sort of impact, um, you know, the next composition that we hear from you? Like I said, it is always at the forefront of my mind. So it is a subject that is reoccurring. It is going to be one of the main storyline for Radio Float, which is a commission I am creating right now for WQXR, and which uh, basically revolves around songs of harvest from the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. And it is also at the forefront of uh, an opera, a chamber opera that I'm composing right now called Ruinous Gods. This opera actually was in development during my time at Dumbarton Oaks. It talks about seven children who are suffering from disresignation syndrome. Basically, children uh, go to sleep willingly, like in a state of uh, coma. And some wake up after a few months, some after a few years, and some never do. And uh, it mainly affects children who have uh, been through lots of, of trauma due to migration or forced displacement or war. And this opera is basically um, a mythology of dreams where we follow those children who are sleeping all the way to their dreams and try to understand why children who symbolize the future choose to divest from it. What does it say about the state of the earth and life as we are leaving it to them? What does it say about the environment that we are leaving to them in which state? And the political issues the sociological issues, everything we have been um, dealing with or not dealing with, basically. So, of course, climate is one of um, the main subjects of this opera. Violinist and composer Lyal Chakar, member of this year's Artist Propulsion Lab, along with pianist and composer Fabian Almazan and the paleobotanist David Lentz. Next time, baritone Justin Austin sits down for a conversation with audio engineer Josh Berg, his collaborator with whom he worked on the album Donda by Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Thank you to Bright Shiny Things for allowing us to use the Willamette Valley Chamber Music Festival recording of Gabriella Lena Frank's Tingo Maria, also available at brightshiny.ninja. Thanks also to Pentatone Records for the recording of Messiaen's Le Colis Sondes, performed by Pierre-Laurent Aymar, and to Fabien Almazan for the recording of his piece, The Songs of the Forgotten. The Artist Propulsion Lab is a production of Classical New York WQXR. This episode was produced by Max Fine and me, John Schaefer, and edited by Matt Frassica. 
Our production team also includes Hanako Yamaguchi and Jade Jiang. Thanks for listening. <laughs>